the Russians haven't lost a single inch of territory, and the Ukrainians have lost hundreds, if not thousands, of troops, dozens, if not hundreds, of vehicles. And that's the way it's going to go from now on. Russia's not losing. Russia's winning. Russia's shutting down the Ukrainian power grid. Forty percent has been destroyed. We'll probably be close to a hundred percent by the end of this month. Then it gets cold. Ukraine freezes to death. The will of the people to continue resistance collapses. We get political collapse. Meanwhile, Russia is grinding the Ukrainian military down. The Ukrainian military is going to lose heart. They've got no reserves left. They burned all the reserves in these suicidal attacks. The Russians are increasing their power. They win. Russia wins this conflict hands down. A victory will become,、uh, you know, it's not only assured right now, but it'll become apparent to everybody in the weeks and months to come. So Russia is winning. With the global economy being in shambles and central bankers moving towards a reset, it's never been a better time to protect your wealth by owning precious metals. Contact Andy at MilesFranklin.com. Tell him Sarah sent you. He promised me he will guarantee you the lowest price anywhere in the country. Remember, email Andy at MilesFranklin.com and tell him Sarah sent you. It's never been a better time to protect your future than now. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Scott Ritter coming to the program. I think you're going to be really impressed with him with what's going on with the Ukraine、um, war, the talk of nuclear weapons, just all the craziness. That I mean, it couldn't be any crazier when we start talking about nuclear weapons. And so I'm just going to read you his bio. It's very impressive. Scott Ritter is a former Marine intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union, implementing arms control agreements, and on the staff of General Norman Swarovskoff during the Gulf War, where he played a critical role in the hunt for Iraqi Scud missiles. From 1991 until 1998, Mr. Ritter served as a chief inspector for the United Nations in Iraq, leading the search for Iraq's proscribed weapons of mass destruction. Mr. Ritter was a vocal critic of the American decision to go to war with Iraq. He resides in upstate New York, where he writes on issues pertaining to arms control, the Middle East, and national security. Scott Ritter has testified before a combined armed services foreign affairs hearing、uh, of the U.S. Senate and before the House Foreign Relations and National Security Committees. He has testified before a combined armed services foreign affairs hearing of the U.S. Senate and before the Ho- House Foreign Relations and National Security Committees. He has spoken to NATO, the United Nations, the British, Canadian, Italian, French, Iraqi, Japanese, and European parliaments. He has done public speaking engagements at Harvard. MIT, Brown, Dartmouth, Cornell, Yale, Columbia, and dozens of other public and private universities and colleges across the country. He has spoken before the Council on Foreign Affairs, Chatham House, and Russi in London, and various world affairs councils. He is very. Now, I'm adding this part. He is really experienced in nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. He is an expert, a world expert, and he also has written many books. And you can look for those books at Amazon or wherever great books are sold under Scott Ritter. And you can also follow him on Telegram under at Scott Ritter. So look for that. And before we get into this really good conversation that you're not going to hear in the mass media, but you need to. I want to remind you to go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. And while you're there, look at the news site. My website now is pretty much a full-blown news site. We're publishing articles on an ongoing basis, and I'm trying to get out there the most important things that you really need to know. 
The site just keeps growing and I'm trying to keep up with it. I also want to tell you while you're at the site, please support my affiliates. That's how I support my show. And also while you're there, you can see a link to our campaign for free speech. I have a link now to the show that I did on Caravan to Midnight with our attorney, Chris Armenta. I think you'll get a lot out of that one. You'll see a link on our defending free speech at givesengo.com. And I'll put a link to that below as well. And then I also want to warn you that in this interview, I don't think my mic was working. And so I think I was just using straight from the computer. So I apologize for that. I just bit the bullet and I'm waiting. I'm going to get the most professional mic I can find. The ones that people on the top television programs that Broadway uses on theater. I just said, I'm doing this. And so I was working with a sound consultant over the last day after I heard the computer take over. I think it was a computer during my mic. I don't know how that happened, but I'm just like, never again am I going to have that happen to me. So we'll see. It probably could happen again, but at least I'll get the best mic I can possibly find. So hopefully in the future that won't happen again. So this is a long one. It's It could have been split into three parts, but I just made it over an hour each segment. So it's a long one. And so look for part two. So here's my interview with Scott Ritter. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you. I want to talk to you about a lot of things, but so the listeners know, and a lot of people know who you are, but just so they get uh, people who don't or people who, you know, heard your name and maybe aren't quite aware, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background as being uh, working with weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You were the lead on that, right? Looking for weapons of mass destruction. Well, I, I wasn't the lead. The the the, the chief um, the, the the chief executive was, um, or I guess we called him the um, executive um, chairman. Was uh, initially a Swedish diplomat named Rolf Akeus, and he was replaced later by an Australian diplomat named Richard Butler. Uh, he would run what was called the Special Commission. Uh, the special commission was just that—a commission of, um, uh, of of experts from around the world uh, who had very little power. Um, the ultimate uh, power for the special commission ran to the um, from the executive chairman to his staff, which was comprised of um, experts drawn from around the world uh, who were specialists in various uh, fields and who led the inspections into Iraq. Each inspection. Um, had a chief inspector appointed. So there were numerous chief inspectors. I was one of uh, many chief inspectors. Uh, my right. my uh, my responsibility was initially ballistic missiles. And then later I, um, I assumed responsibility for uh, what we call the concealment mechanism. That is to investigate uh, how Iraq hid weapons of mass destruction uh, programs and information from the special uh, from, from the special commission. So I was a, a very senior chief inspector and, and I mean, whether people liked it or not, when my teams were in country, they took precedent over any other team that was there. Um, not because of me per se, but because of the uh, nature of the work that we were doing. So I, um, I think some people would say that I was punching above my weight. I, uh, I was a very young guy who uh, was given uh, a tremendous amount of responsibility. Um, probably more than somebody of my age and experience should have been given. So what did you learn when you were there? Because, you know, we 
the media and people in general believe that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And what was your personal experience there? Uh, why you did it? And how did that change your view of things in general? Well, before we get to that, because this this relates, um, you know, I, I just wasn't picked out of the blue to go to the special commission. Um, uh, I actually had done weapons inspections prior to this um, in the former Soviet Union. I was one of the first um, on-site inspectors uh, dispatched by the United States into the Soviet Union to implement the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And the important thing about that is that prior to that, there was no such thing as on-site inspections. Um, nobody wanted other inspectors from other nations on their soil. They viewed every inspector as a spy. Yep. The INF Treaty changed that. And so I literally helped write the book on on-site inspections. Okay. Old joke. How do you become an expert in something? Be the first person to do it. <laughs> then you're the expert. <laughs> and, that uh, is so funny. and so I became an expert on on-site inspection. And then during the Gulf War, I was assigned to General Schwarzkopf's staff, and I was um, one of the people that was uh, responsible for the what we call the counter scud campaign, uh, hunting down Iraq's uh, ballistic missile capability before it could be launched against Israel or Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arab states. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is that the combination of those two things, my background as a weapons inspector, my status as an intelligence officer, and my wartime experience in hunting for Iraqi Scud missiles is what was on my resume when they picked me to head up an intelligence unit in the Special Commission. That was what I was brought in to do. And the reason why I was brought in to do this, I was brought in in September. I was recruited in August, brought in in September. The Special Commission had been uh, in existence since April and inspectors have been on the ground uh, since late May, early June. And the experience of the inspectors throughout the summer of 1991 was that the Iraqis were lying. They weren't telling the truth. They had only declared part of what, they, uh, what the world knew that they had in terms of chemical weapons and ballistic missiles. Um, I was brought in because we couldn't account for all Iraq's ballistic missiles. So they said, hey, you, you track that stuff during the war. Why don't you come in and help us out? Um, the first thing I did is review all of the intelligence, and I wrote a paper that said, I, I think the Iraqis are hiding um, about six launchers and about uh, 100 missiles. Everyone went, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, I, and I showed my analysis. Uh, I was very good at uh, pulling nothing out of something, or something out of nothing, I guess. But uh, long story short, uh, in March of 1992, the Iraqis, under pressure from the inspectors, acknowledged that they had lied. 98 missiles, five launchers. I was pretty close, um, you know, it, but that that's the skill set that I brought was, um, you know, my 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 I guess my professionalism and capabilities as an intelligence officer. But as the as the inspections progressed, I would go and collect information from around the world and then I would uh, create an, an inspection concept of operations that would be handed off to a chief inspector. But invariably, the chief inspectors didn't know anything about the intelligence that they were being asked to investigate. So I would step in as the operations officer and um, and I would run the inspection. So I became sort of the jack of all trades, which made me unique in this regard. I was the only person that was out there interfacing with the intelligence services around the world, gathering intelligence and then turning it into an operation, and then leading the operation. So I was involved in the complete circle of information. Um, and eventually, um, I 
you know, as an American, especially my age, remember, I was a young kid back then. I was, How old were you? Well, when we started, I had just turned 30. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so now I'm 31 years old and I'm dealing with guys in their late 40s, their 50s, uh, veteran diplomats, veteran arms control experts. And here comes this uh, wet behind the ears kid saying, hey, I know I know better than you. And I did. Um, you know, but it, you got to learn diplomacy. And that's the one thing yeah. that was like, he's like, uh, hey, you're very good. But I'm going to pair you up with this Russian diplomat named Nikita Smidovich because he's really mature. And he was Nikita Smidovich was the best thing in the world. You know, a great guy, intelligent, mature, calm. You could not ruffle this guy at all. Meanwhile, me, on the other hand, I'm like the Tasmanian devil behind him. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Yeah. But we were a great team. And eventually Nikita stepped aside and I took over and uh, I had the honor and privilege of leading 14 uh, inspections. When we started, the Iraqis, like I said, had underdeclared their missiles, underdeclared their chemicals, had not declared any biological weapon capability and not declared any nuclear capability. By the time we finished, we had full declarations on all four categories and we could we could account for uh, anywhere between you know, 90, 95% of their of their of their weapon stock so they had weapons of mass destruction at one point they had a lot of them they lied at early on about what they had uh and through the you know seven years of diligent work and i'm talking being deployed over 250 days a year on occasion um you know this was not you know desk work and so this was out in the field uh in very uh confrontational circumstances oftentimes staring down iraqi soldiers who had loaded weapons who didn't want to let you in um, and all you had was an armband and attitude. Um, and, but that armband and attitude was good enough to get us to where we could uh, say that we could account for almost everything in Iraq. And what we couldn't account for, we could mitigate against by um, having in, you know, implemented uh, the, the most stringent um, monitoring verification regime in the history of arms control. We literally blanketed the totality of Iraq's industrial infrastructure with surveillance cameras, no notice inspections, other sensors. Um, and we knew that Iraq wasn't continuing to produce weapons of mass destruction. We also knew that most of the stuff that we couldn't account for had a shelf life of a few months to a few years. And we're seven years into the process. Anything Iraq might have held onto could never be viable. So we were in a pretty good position from 1997 uh, to say that Iraq was largely in compliance, but the United States wouldn't accept that because to call Iraq into compliance would mean you have to lift economic sanctions. And to lift economic sanctions meant that Saddam Hussein was off the hook at a time when the United States wasn't interested in disarming Iraq, but instead of getting rid of Saddam Hussein. So um, that's ultimately why I resigned, because my job was to complete the mission of disarmament. And the United States government was interfering with my ability to do that. Uh, so I resigned, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, because you you're very famous for saying, "Hey, this is BS on what was going on." Now you also now are speaking up about what's going on in Russia and and in Ukraine. Can you talk about what you what your thoughts are on that? Because we are they, they we're close to. A nuclear situation. And I don't know if we are close, but it sure seems like it because everybody's threatening it. So what the heck? And why are we in this situation where people are threatening nuclear war 
it seems like we have a bunch of little kids fighting <laughs> with big kid weapons. So, I mean, just total stupidity. What is, although I, I'm not so sure if Russia seems as dumb to me as some of the stuff that we're doing. So can you talk about what your view is on this? Sure. I, again, uh, before I can talk about now, I think we have to go back in time a little bit, back to the 1980s. Um, you know, when I joined the Marine Corps, I was in a nuclear-capable artillery unit. Uh, that meant that we were prepared to fire tactical nuclear weapons in a combat environment. We practiced that all the time against Soviet targets uh, in, in scenarios involving the, the Soviet Union. I remember my first command post exercise where we were out there, you know, maneuvering on a map and uh, the Soviets break through. And so we, of course, call up the the, the eight-inch uh, howitzer and it fires its nuclear shell and we blow up the, the advancing Soviet motorized rifle regiment. And then the exercise ends. And I said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> why did it end? They said, well, they retaliated uh, with general nuclear war. It's all over, we all died. <laughs> and and that's sort of the reality of it. And you know, we live in a time where we we knew that the use of nuclear weapons meant mutually assured destruction. That there was no defense. In fact, we, you know, we had implemented the uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty with the Soviets back in 1972 for that very reason, to stop pretending that you could win a nuclear war. Uh, because if you thought you could win a nuclear war, then you're going to go bankrupt trying to build new missiles, new capabilities, new defenses, none of which will work. And so we both both sides rec recognize that this is stupid. What we need to do is eliminate the defenses and then operate knowing that we each had nuclear deterrence. That our ability to destroy you and your ability to destroy us meant we're not going to use these weapons. And that sort of made sense and it sort of worked. But then in the 1980s, uh, we, we started to believe that we could win a nuclear war. We, we started to get advanced uh, technologies that gave us the ability to more accurately target, uh, you know, Soviet silos. Um, we got, you know, the, the Soviets responded by building a new category of missile, the SS-20, a three warhead intermediate missile that could destroy all of Europe. We responded by deploying the Pershing-2 and the Grand Launch cruise missile. Pershing-2 is just seven minutes time of flight to Moscow. So the second we launched, the Russians would have literally seven minutes to make a decision before dying. Um, and next thing you know, we have this command post exercise called Able Archer 83, 83 being the year, where we had just flown in tens of thousands of American troops in an exercise called Return of Forces to Germany, Reforger. We now had a lot of troops on the border and we were going to test nuclear release command and control. And the Soviets are monitoring us saying, those son of a guns are about to launch a preemptive nuclear strike against us. So they put their forces on high alert. They deployed nuclear bombs on four deployed aircraft. They put the SS-20s out in the field, ready to launch. We were one mistake away from the world ending. I don't think too many Americans realize that, how close wow. we were to the world ending. You know who did eventually realize it? Ronald Wilson Reagan. He was briefed on this by the CIA a year later. And he said, wait a minute, a wait a minute. A year later? And he didn't even know about it while it was going on. Well, we have to remember intelligence is about, well, when I say here, he's briefed in 1984, but the exercise was in November. So he's probably briefed in early 1984. Um, so maybe six months later, but it takes a while to, you know, collect intelligence um, and, um, and and evaluate the intelligence. But he finally got briefed on the product. He said, "Hey, the the Soviets actually thought we were going to launch a nuclear strike, and they were close to to to, to nuking us." And, and, and Reagan went, "What?" 
that was an exercise. How could they, they don't really think we would do something like that. And the CIA guy uh, said, yeah, they actually do think we're going to do that. And he said, this is insane. This is crazy. And that began the process of refocusing a man who called the Soviet Union the evil empire uh, into sitting down with Mikhail Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Communist Party of Russia or the Soviet Union. Uh, and on December 19, December 8th, 1987, we're coming up on the 35th anniversary, by the way, uh, in signing the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which got rid of all those weapons in Europe that were on the verge of killing people. Um, and I bring that up because we, we, we had, and this is something I'm very proud of. I was part of a process, and it was a very difficult process, by the way. A lot of people sacrificed a whole bunch um, to implement this treaty to get rid of these weapons. Um, and, you know, Europe, when we finished with this treaty and those weapons were destroyed, for the first time in decades, Europe could go to bed at night not having to worry about uh, the imminent nuclear demise. We had removed nuclear, you know, meaningful nuclear weapons from Europe. And yet here we are now, 30 years later, and we're right back to where we were in 1983, where we, you know, today, as we speak, we are in the third day of an operation called Steadfast Noon. It's a NATO nuclear exercise ongoing as we speak, where we take B-52 bombers with simulated nuclear weapons loads and we fly them towards the Russian border. We take nuclear capable aircraft and practice loading nuclear weapons onto them and flying them as if they're going to launch bombs against the, the Russians. Um, wow, and so what did the Russians do? They launched their own nuclear exercise called GROM, and it's ongoing right now, too. They have their nuclear forces in the field uh, practicing their nuclear launch. You know, all it would take is one mistake, one hiccup, and we'd be back to nuclear annihilation. Now you'd say, well, we've learned our lesson, really. You're a Russian now. Last week, what did you hear? You heard Ukrainian President Zelensky beg NATO to launch a preemptive nuclear strike. Yeah. Beg NATO to do this. And so what did NATO do? John Stoltenberg, the secretary general, comes up and throws a temper tantrum. A Russian victory, he said, would be a defeat for NATO. That's why we must flex our nuclear muscle. So he's holding a nuclear exercise right now that simulates the very things you would have to do if you were going to launch a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia. Any sane person, any rational person would have said, hey, Putin, Zelensky, he's talking, you know, out of thin air. Don't listen to him. But just to make sure you don't think we're going to do anything stupid, we're postponing our exercise. We're not going to do it. We don't want you to think the wrong thing. We have no intention of uh, using nuclear weapons against you. Instead, we do the exercise. We are on literally a razor thin edge uh, away from nuclear annihilation. Let me make it clear. Russia will never use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Russia has never threatened to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Russia has a nuclear doctrine that allows nuclear release under two conditions. One, if they're attacked by nuclear weapons, and we'll get to that in a second because that's very important. And two, if conventional forces um, uh, attack Russia in a way that threatens the very existence of the Russian state. I'm talking not about an attack on Kherson or on um, you know, uh, Belgorod, I'm talking about a drive against St. Petersburg or Moscow. Well, none of those things are happening right now. None of those things are, are at risk of happening, except one. You see, the United States, back in the Bush administration, uh, we, we implemented a, a modification to our nuclear posture that allows us to preemptively use nuclear weapons 
to gain a battlefield advantage. Remember Stoltenberg's statement, a Russian victory is a defeat for NATO. And now you say, oh, suddenly we, we have a motive now uh, for a preemptive nuclear strike. But do we have the means? The United States has developed a warhead called the W-76-2, a low-yield nuclear warhead that we put on the Trident uh, D-5, you know, Mark III a submarine launch ballistic missile. It's there right now. It was exercised in 2020. Uh, then Defense Secretary Mark Esperage went to the Strategic Command in Omaha and practiced the release authorization to allow this missile to be fired against simulated Russian targets in a pretend invasion of the Baltic. So we've actually tested our ability to launch this weapon in a preemptive nuclear strike against Russian targets. We're the ones that have a preemptive nuclear strike capability. We're the ones that believe that you can win a nuclear war. We're the ones that believe that you can escalate to de-escalate in a nuclear conflict. What does Russia say to this? As Putin said a couple of years ago, if you use nuclear weapons against us, we will destroy everybody. We'll all be dead, but we'll be martyrs. You'll just be the guys who started a nuclear war. Well, they won't even be martyrs because nobody will be around to even know what the martyr is. Well, he, he, he's implying he'll be up in heaven. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> going to be bad. Okay, so they believe that these these uh, tactical nukes, right? You're talking tactical nukes. Now, what is the difference between a tactical nuke versus one that blows up an entire city? Well, it, it's, it's both in terms of um, the size and the intent. A tactical nuke is just that. It's designed to achieve... Um, a, a certain result on the battlefield. As I said early on, when I was in the Marines, uh, our artillery-fired nuclear rounds were considered tactical nukes. So if the uh, Soviets broke through the lines and come screaming down on a port city that we're defending and we got nothing left to stop them, we fire a tactical nuke. Uh, so we destroy that, 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 that regiment. Um, it, it has limited capability, but very lethal for the, the area it's at. Most tactical nukes, are um, much smaller than the uh, devices that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A strategic nuclear weapon, however, <laughs> is much bigger than what we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A strategic nuclear weapon is a, literally a city killer. Um, 150 kilotons, uh, the Nagasaki weapon was what, 15? So we're talking 10 times the size. Uh, then we can get into the megatonnage. Um, you know, and, and, and it's some very large megatonnage uh, weapons. Uh, these are used to collapse um, missile silos. These are used to destroy industrial uh, areas, um, industrial capacity, port cities, uh, population centers, command and control centers. A strategic nuke basically uh, annihilates a population and, uh, and a nation's ability to sustain itself. So that's the difference. The vast majority of our weapons today um, that are deployed are strategic nuclear weapons deployed on um, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, they can be deployed by bombers and they fired from uh, submarines. So when we're talking that we can win a nuclear war, we're talking we can win a nuclear war like that. I mean, we're not talking tactical nukes that are very limited. We're they're talking strategic nukes that'll take out entire populations. One of the things that the Russians are, see, the United States is not quite articulated, although I can guarantee you in Omaha, Nebraska, um, the guys that are there, the guys and gals that are there, 
uh, believe they can win a nuclear war. Um, they think that we can get our trident, we can get our um, Ohio class submarines close enough to the uh, Russian uh, coastline that we fire our tridents on a on a, um, a a reduced trajectory. They get to their targets quicker, and they're so accurate that we can take out the majority of uh, of the Russian silo based missiles and even their road mobile missiles and their garrisons. But what would be the cost? I mean, would we destroy we, their civilization? Yeah, we would destroy their civilization. We don't care. They're Russian. Kill them all. And that, and they're okay with that. I mean, these people these are, are people. so psychotic that they're okay to kill all the Russians in order to win some stupid war that we probably could have negotiated ourselves out of in the first place. Well, look, let's 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 go back to the beginning. You know, we we've had nuclear weapons, you know, since the '40s, but in the uh, '60s. Uh, we produced, it was the first time we produced a, a nuclear war plan. It was called the uh, Single Integrated Operations Plan, or PSYOP. And uh, John F. Kennedy was the first president to be briefed on it. And he, when he was briefed on it, um, he was aghast. Uh, he, and, and he basically said, you mean that if we go to nuclear war, we only have one option, which is to kill everything and we destroy all of humanity. And the Air Force went, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what we got. And he said, and we call ourselves you know, humankind. He, he, he was sickened by it. Every president that's been briefed on the nuclear war plan since then, um, you know, and this is anecdotal information, although some of it is direct, has been physically ill afterwards, realizing that this is, this is literally the, the dumbest thing in the world. And every president turns to their military and says, you have to give me more options. The option can't just be to destroy the world. I need more options. And that's where we, we, you know, we've tried to refine it. So now we have, uh, we don't call it the PSYOP anymore. It's called something else. But the president has a range of options um, from, you know, a preemptive nuclear strike to full-scale nuclear war that he can tailor to different things. But the military doesn't like that. At the end of the day, I'll just give you a, a quick secret here. Every single one of those options ends with a general nuclear exchange because the military said, okay, so the politician wants an option. So we're going to say, here, Mr. President, if you break open this uh, launch code, you're going to launch the following missiles against the following targets. And the president goes, oh, okay, that's limited. But what they don't say is, once that's done, everything's on full automatic, and we go to full nuclear exchange in about an hour and a half later. Um, so it all takes you to the same spot, which is we destroy the world. Now, we believe that we have ballistic missile defense capability that if we can destroy enough of the Russian missiles on the ground before they're launched, and if we could sink enough of their submarines, anything they launch, we'll be able to shoot most of them down. That means they'll only come through and destroy three or five American cities. You pick which three or five you don't want forever, because they're gone forever. The radiation levels will be such that nobody will ever live there again. Um, we're talking about tens of millions of dead. And any American who wears a uniform of the armed services of the United States who thinks that's acceptable should be relieved of their command. Nuclear war isn't acceptable. It should never be thought. We should not give the president any options except one, which is if you nuke us, we nuke you, we kill everything. Therefore, nobody will ever use nuclear weapons. We agreed to this principle uh, just this year. All five of the you know acknowledged nuclear powers United States, Russia, China, France, United Kingdom came together and they said, because a nuclear war can never be won, it should never be fought. And yet today, right now, Steadfast Noon is training to fight and win a nuclear war against Russia. We are the biggest hypocrites the world has ever seen.
so oh my god so where is uh, uh, you know we're all worried that biden doesn't even know what's going on right so who's really behind uh, who's really this stupid because you know biden talked about nuclear armageddon and that we need to prepare or this is the closest we've ever been and then he goes on vacation for the weekend yeah, I mean, people have... are just like what the hell is going on i i I'm trying to be nice, so I am going to be nice. Um, you know, he's the commander-in-chief. And you can't have the commander-in-chief, the man with his hand on the nuclear trigger, at a fundraiser, a fundraiser, a political fundraiser, just talking off the cuff in a totally unscripted manner about Armageddon. This is as irresponsible as it gets because it cheapens it. It cheapens the threat of nuclear war to a simple fundraising mechanism. Um, nobody in that room had a need to to hear that talk. Nobody in that room had a, you know, had a need to know. Um, and, and and the president should be very careful. He shouldn't joke about these things. He shouldn't talk about these things. Was he joking? Well, I mean, everything with Biden's a joke when he's talking in an environment like that. I know the guy. I've met the guy. I've talked to the guy. He's lectured me when I was testifying for the Senate. Um, so everything I, I spent, uh, uh, you know, an hour in his office in a one-on-one -on -one meeting where he apologized for his behavior and everything to him is, a is a touchy feely joke. So, you know, they, all we have is the audio, but I, I know the guy, I know he was leaning in. I know he was touching somebody and I know he had a smirk on his face because that's Joe Biden. Um, that, that term that and anything dealing with nuclear, uh, war should never been brought up in a fundraiser. That's the sole purview of, you know, high level national security, uh, you know, meetings where the only thing you should be talking about is how we can avoid this. How do we avoid nuclear war? And the, and the best way to avoid it is not to hype it up. Why would Joe Biden, knowing full well what Russian nuclear doctrine is, it's published, it's been published since 2020, um, ever start speculating about Russia using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? I mean, it's just pure nonsense, and he's doing it for political purposes because nobody believes Russia is going to use a nuclear weapon against Ukraine, but everybody wants to be seen as being strong. So we pretend Russia is going to use it. Then we tell the Russians, if you use it, there will be dire consequences to you. But what are those dire consequences? Well, it turns out they'll just be conventional in nature, but they're going to hurt. One of the things that is discussed is a preemptive decapitation strike against Moscow. That means killing Putin. Um, what part of any conventional attack that threatens the survival of the Russian state will automatically trigger a Russian nuclear response? And let me say something that's going to scare the you-know-what out of you, and everybody listen to this. When I was an inspector uh, in the Soviet Union, we had a little missile crisis. I won't get into the details too much, but the three missiles that ended up being at the center of this crisis were missiles that didn't have warheads. They were missiles that had communications packages. Their nickname was Sirena. They were part of a larger of an overall program called Perimeter, which was linked to what's called the Dead Hand. Uh, the purpose of the Sirena missiles were that when the Soviets were mobilized, the Sirenas would deploy into areas and then wait. And um, if the United States launched a nuclear attack against Russia that decapitated, the, the Dead Hand had a whole bunch of sensors. They had radiological sensors. They had seismic sensors. Um, they had standard communication signals that would be sent out on a on a regular basis. And if you interrupted the command signals 
if they detected radiation, if they detected seismic activity that was that, that fit the model of a nuclear attack, then the Sirena would automatically launch and fly over the Soviet Union, uh, broadcasting the uh, the launch codes, and then every nuclear weapon in the Soviet Union would automatically fire against uh, against the United States and other targets in the world. This program still exists to this day. So here we are talking about a decapitation strike against Putin in Moscow, knowing full well that the moment we do that, the modern day equivalent of the Sirena missile will be launched, will fly across the Soviet Union, outside of the range of our anti-missile capabilities, broadcasting signals that send every missile in the Soviet or in the Russian inventory to the United States. It's suicide. And yet we're talking about it. And we announce this. We're glib about it. We are literally governed by madmen. We don't have anybody with the maturity of a JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis um, or any of the presidents since then who have you know, gone through this test and, uh, and, and, and come out of it. Uh, you know, you know, Richard Nixon back in, uh, I think, 1969, uh, he operated on something called the madman theory. He wanted the North Vietnamese to believe that he was fully capable of using a nuclear weapon so that they would go to the negotiating table. Uh, Donald Trump, he operated the same thing, threatening uh, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, with fire and fury. Uh, but then he ended up meeting three times with Kim Jong-un to, to implement denuclearization. It didn't work, but that's what his intent was. You know, Ronald Reagan called uh, the Soviet Union the evil empire and once joked about, uh, you know, he's doing a thing, he thought the mic was off, and he says, and the missiles, the missiles are reaching in 30 minutes. Um, but he implemented the first ever uh, nuclear disarmament treaty. And now we got Joe Biden. Joe Biden is sitting there at a fundraiser talking about Armageddon while he shuts down nuclear disarmament talks with Russians, while he talks about or allows people to talk about a conventional decapitation strike that will result in an immediate nuclear retaliation by the, by the Russians. This is the wrong man for the job. This is, guy should not be in power. The only... I think the thing I can say that mollifies people is that we do have professional military officers who have taken an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. And one key aspect of the Constitution is that the U.S. military is prohibited from executing an unlawful order. And one of the one things that makes an order unlawful is that the um, actions, uh, if undertaken, would constitute a war crime. So one of the things that the generals do when they receive an order for nuclear launch is they take a look at the validity of the order. I mean, who it came from, et cetera, but also the circumstances. Is there a threat worthy of the intervention? It's called proportionality. It's enshrined in the Geneva Convention, International Humanitarian Law, the laws of war. Proportionality is what we're about to do proportional to the, you know, the threat that's posed. And if the answer is no, then you cannot obey that order. You have to send it back and say, Mr. President, uh, this is a disproportional response. I cannot, you know, by law, execute this order. And General Miley, uh, who's the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I know a lot of people don't hold him in high regard, but he has said um, that, you know, at a time when people thought that Donald Trump in the final mo moments of his presidency might do something crazy and order a nuclear missile launch, um, he said that um, that it would never happen because he and the other officers would apply the concepts of proportionality and um, also military uh, um, imperatives. And if it didn't add up, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't obey the launch. So one can only hope that that same 
attitude is in play today. So if Joe Biden ever does something stupid, like order a nuclear strike or a conventional strike that would trigger a nuclear war, that the military tells him, no, sir, that's an illegal order. I cannot execute it. But didn't you think that's all propaganda with the 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 Trump situation? Because they were just making stuff up. No, no, I agree. I I I I, I agree. Trump was yeah. Trump wasn't getting ready to launch a nuke against anybody. That's all just garbage and hocus pocus and all that. But I'm just focusing on the response. No, I know, I know. And and so I think he was ready to just calm people down. But I'm wondering if these guys are would be likely to do that because they've already shown with the coronavirus, with the COVID situation, with the military forcing them to all get vaccines when they don't need them, they're, they're willing to do things that are the proportionality, like you say, they went way outside that. I mean, already with something and they're destroying their own military with it. So I wonder if these guys have the common sense to do what's right in any situation. Uh, look, I'm, 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 I'm up there with you. I'm I'm disturbed by the fact that we had a Secretary of Defense fly to Kiev and then come out and talk about that the uh, goal of the United States was to um, bring harm to Russians, to hurt the Russians, uh, to weaken Russia. That means we want to kill Russians. Do you remember in the final months of the Trump administration, um, the stories going around about the Russian bounties? Yeah. Russians are paying bounties to the Taliban to kill Americans. Um, of course, it never happened. It's all garbage and all that stuff. But do you remember the outrage in America? Oh, my God, the Russians, if you're paying bounties, you guys are evil and all that stuff. OK, so we and, and, and then when you when you broke it down, um, it all came down to a, a, an attack that was done outside of a Bagram Air Base, where I think three Americans were killed. And we were ready to go to war against Russia. <laughs> you know, not really war, but we were. You know, we were mad at the Russians for the deaths of three Americans. And believe me, I hold every American life in high regard. And if, had there been a bounty, I would have been outraged. But we're involved in a process that's killing thousands of Russians, thousands I of know, Russians. I know. And, you know, what do you think the Russians are thinking when they hear, you know, the, the American Secretary of Defense say, no, our job right now is to kill Russians. Well, it's like, well, are we at war? I, I, didn't, I didn't see that we were at war. But the point is, from the United States perspective, we are at war. I mean, that's why the, the Jan Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, uh, stands up and, and makes a statement that says a, a, a Russian victory is a NATO defeat. We are putting the reputation, the prestige of NATO and the United States on the line in Ukraine in a conflict that the Ukrainians cannot win. And in the process, we're killing Russians, we're alienating Russians, and we're creating you know, animosity, distrust. Uh, we're, we're destroying relationships that will be needed post-conflict to prevent this from becoming a broader war. So I actually share your bleak assessment of the, um, the current state of military leadership in America. I'm sure there's some general officers out there who would do the right thing, but I, I, I don't have confidence in the, the highest echelons of leadership because they have shown a proclivity to make politically motivated decisions that were detrimental to the health and well-being of the men and women under their command. Well, what do we do? Because it seems that it's very scary that we have people like this, and it seems like they want to do it for the reset. Like they want to create, every time there's been a monetary reset, there's been a war, right? 
And if you look at history and you go through it, and it seems that they want the chaos for something to do with this reset. And these people don't care how many people they die. It's as if they really want a war. That's the behavior I'm seeing. Well, they have a war. Uh, We're just not calling it a war. Um, Look, these the current leadership is is totally insane. Uh, when you have the president of the United States who, who ran on a platform that said, I'm going to repair relations with NATO. I'm going to repair relations with Europe. That Donald Trump was the worst thing in the world. He harmed relations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to go in and make everything good. And he travels over there. They hold hands. They sing Kumbaya. And then he lures them into a war in Ukraine uh, and then and then coerces them into committing suicide by cutting themselves off from Russian energy, which for the past six decades had enriched them, gave them the money to turn Europe into this, you know, seemingly paradise on earth. Um, Without a plan B, there's no other energy to replace it. So Europe right now is literally jumping off the cliff like lemmings uh, at the orders of the United States. And then the one lifeline they have, Nord Stream 2, um, he attacks. Now, people say, well, wait a minute, Scott, you don't know he attacked. He confessed to it beforehand, February 7th, in his statement to the press. Um, if the Russian tanks move into Ukraine, uh, I'll shut it down. It'll end. It'll cease to exist. Certainly, Mr. President, you don't mean that. It's a German thing. It will come to an end. Well, it came to an end. Um, the, Sw- the Swedes, uh, whose zone of economic interest the pipeline was in, that you know the, the section was in, they've done an investigation. They actually found debris. Uh, they know who did it. And they've sealed the investigation. They say, we're not going to talk about this because if we if we describe what we know, it will hurt our national security. And the Germans have done the same thing. We don't want to know, they said, but they do know. Everybody they knows. Do know. The United but, States did it. We attacked Europe. Well, and they we have um, Monkey Works. He shows all the planes that are in the area, and he shows a Navy plane in the area at that time. Yep, operating operating the Sea Fox underwater unmanned vehicle, the same model that was found underneath the Nord Stream One pipeline in November 2015. Um, and, and right after we launch a major uh, demining exercise in the same spot, by the way, back in June, uh, where we trained to use the Sea Fox. Um, so yeah, no, we did. And well, of course, then we also have you know any lawyer will tell you there's the the, the concept of qui bono, uh, who profits. Um, and you have Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, coming out, almost rubbing his hands in greed, saying, you know, this is a great opportunity for the United States. Yeah. What opportunity? To sell Europe liquid natural, na- liquid natural gas um, at prices 10 times uh, market rate. We're, we're raking in profits at the expense of our so-called European friends after we attacked a $12 billion piece of critical energy infrastructure. We're not friends of Europe. When is Europe going to wake up and understand that actually the biggest friend they have was Russia? It was Russia that made them wealthy. It was Russia that gave them energy security. And at the end of the day, it'll be Russia that'll come back and sell them energy at a reasonable price, while America is jacking up the price of LNG to rake in profits at the expense of our erstwhile allies. Yeah, but that will just hurt us long term. I mean, because we can only go so long before people get really, really angry. And it'll come back on us, yeah. you know, people who live here, because you just can't behave that way without people. I mean, there's a reckoning. You, you don't get away with behaving like that forever. 
And so th this is just absolutely nuts. And I don't think it's America as much as it's a globalist pursuit or somebody else behind it, because uh, I mean, this is suicide or we got nut bags. It's not the American people, although the American people need to freaking speak up. So, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It's my God. So uh, Europe, let's talk a little bit about Europe. Europe's in a situation where I think they're going to suffer. We're going to see massive deaths this winter. There's no doubt about it that there will be thousands of deaths, maybe tens of thousands of deaths that are directly attributable to the fact that Europe will not have the means to adequately heat their homes uh, in, 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 in public places uh, this winter. Um, but it's, it's more than that. Um, we're, we're seeing the destruction of the European economy and with that, the destruction of European society. You know, we talk about the rule, the rules-based international order. You hear Biden and Blinken and Sullivan and the rest of that uh, crowd talk about this as being the founding principles of America's interaction with the rest of the world. And, and what makes the rules, you know, it, it's basically a, a system of uh, organizations and, and mechanisms that were imposed on the world by the United States in the aftermath of the Second World War, where we were the singular superpower for democracy, and the world needed us to rebuild. So, of course, we wrote the rules, we imposed the rules. Um, and that's okay. I'm not against that. Then the Cold War came, and we needed the rules to hold together this, this, this fragile alliance uh, against the forces of uh, international communism. Okay, I'm, I'm there. But then we win the Cold War, the Soviet Union goes away. We don't need this rules-based international order. What we need to do right now is actually do what any mama bird does at some point in time, kick the birds out of the nest and let them fly. Um, yeah. We're willing to do that. We kept Europe in the nest. We kept Asia in the nest. We kept everybody in the nest. We kept hovering over them like some giant mama bird that said, only we can be in charge. And um, you know, a, a key aspect of this are institutions like the G7, institutions like the European Union, institutions like NATO. These are part and parcel, fundamental, foundational elements of the rules-based international order. None of them are likely to survive, not just this winter, but the, the, the years to come. Uh, the, the European Union uh, you know, is, is built upon the premise of a singular currency, the euro and the eurozone. Um, the euro has three pillars, the, the Italian lira, the French franc, and the German mark. The Italian lira is already under risk because they had their own little uh, election that voted out the, uh, you know, the political elite that were supporting uh, some of these, um, you know, Eurocentric policies to include uh, you know, supporting Ukraine in this conflict. And uh, the new prime minister, uh, Giorgio Maloney, Maloney, has said, uh, we're not playing that game anymore. So the Italian lira is starting to, to fluctuate. Uh, the German mark, the strongest currency of the lot. Germany's about to collapse. We blew up their pipeline and they've got nothing. Their industries are literally shutting down. They can't afford to stay open because the United States has jacked up the price of LNG. And even if we didn't jack up the price, there's not enough LNG. Germany's in trouble. They're getting ready to deploy the army into the streets because of anticipated mass violent protests. There will be a revolution in Germany this winter. Uh, so who knows what it's going to look like coming out on the other end. Now in the streets of Paris, we already see tens of thousands of people. This will grow to hundreds of thousands. It'll become more violent because desperate people choose violence. And people become desperate when they don't have food, when they don't have shelter, when they don't have heat, when they don't have employment, when they have nothing. 
And that's what the French are going to have very soon. Nothing. We're going to see a revolution transform Europe. The G7, the seven most powerful, influential economies in the world, this time in February of next year, you can take the British out of it. Look at them. They, 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 they got Liz Truss in there. She's not going to last much longer. Their economy is in free fall. So take the British out because they they're no longer one of the most influential economies. Take the Italians out. Take the Germans out. Take the French out. You now got the G3. That's the United States, Japan, and Canada. You could probably take the Japanese out. Um, so that's a G2. That's nothing. You know what opposes them? BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now we can add Argentina, Iran, who are now members. Everybody wants to be a member. Saudi Arabia wants to be a member. Turkey wants to be a member. Egypt wants to be a member. Everybody wants to join BRICS. Nobody wants to join the G7. That's the direction we're heading right now. We have destroyed the rules-based international order. It has no credibility. It has no capability. It's all because the United States convinced Europe to sanction Russian energy and commit suicide in the process. Well, some people believe that was the whole intent here, is to move everything to the east. And the people who are making these stupid decisions are in on like destroying the United States and moving all the power base to the east and make it look like it was something you know, something else, I, you almost get to that point where that's what you think it is because otherwise they're complete morons. Well, I buy into the complete moron theory. Um, you do. You, know, you think the it's more States, morons than they're... The United States is actually doing okay, right? I mean, I know Joe Biden is fighting, you know, inflation brought on by high energy costs. Um, and, and, and that is a problem. But you know, let's take a look what's happening in Europe right now. You know, one of the things the United States has been struggling for is to improve our manufacturing base. And it's been very difficult for us to hold down um, large scale manufacturing because of the price you have to pay the workers. It's been cheaper for people to take these businesses offshore. In Europe right now, there's a number of industries that can no longer afford to stay in business. But because of the globalist nature of, of the world economy, um, these aren't you know, national businesses. For instance, uh, Audi is a multinational corporation that reports to a board of directors who are about to decide that it doesn't make any sense to continue to produce Audi automobiles in Germany. So they're going to relocate to the United States. There's French companies talking about relocating. So the United States could be in a position where they benefit uh, greatly from this. Look at our energy companies, the, the, the natural gas producers, you know, we, we had an issue where we were producing natural gas um, from all these fracking operations, and we were making, you know, three, four dollars per whatever unit that's traded. Um, we're now selling it to, to Europe for, you know, thousands of dollars per year. We're talking about a thousand percent increase. Um, we are raking in profits. These guys are making a lot of money. Um and so there's some people who think that this was all a conspiracy by the United States to break Europe, to break the European Union, and to strengthen the United States. But that requires a lot of strategic thinking that the United States has never shown a proclivity to uh, engage in uh, in any, any level of competence. The people who are competent are the Chinese. And the Chinese are watching all of this. They're being very wise in their patience. Um, they're watching what's going on in Ukraine. They're, you know, not overreacting to the provocations that we give them regarding Taiwan. They're strengthening their uh, global uh, economic 
uh, infrastructure. You know, they've been running something called the Belts and Roads Initiative now since 2010, where they've invested anywhere between six and ten trillion dollars. That's with a T in global infrastructure. Um, you know, getting control over supply chains that reach into Africa, Asia, Eurasia, even Europe on some occasions. And what has our counter been? Um, you know, Joe Biden pathetically got the G7 to agree to something called the Build Back Better World Program. It fizzled. They come up with something new. And their response to this 10, six to $10 trillion Chinese initiative is a paltry $600 billion counter but it's not really 600 billion. It's only less, it's less than 200 billion of direct investment by the governments involved. And they're hoping that private industry will fill in the gap. But if you were hoping that European private industry is gonna fill in the gap, you're gonna turn blue in the face holding your breath because European industry is collapsing as we speak. We don't know how to compete with the Chinese. How do we know that? Barack Obama put together something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was designed to create a free trade association in the Pacific that excluded the Chinese, kept them out. Donald Trump came in and said, no, nah, we're not doing that. It's bad for us. Shut it down, but didn't have an alternative to it. The Chinese came in, picked up the pieces and built the world's largest free trade association that excludes the United States. So now we're on the outside looking in. Pretty much everything we do with the Chinese ends up with that kind of wrestling reversal where we think we're getting the advantage, Chinese flips us over, next thing we know, we're the ones pinned on the map, on the mat. China is a very strong economy. Um, they're not perfect. I'm sure people out there will say, yeah, but what about X, Y, and Z? Yep, that's true. But I'm talking about from the strategic picture, the Chinese are in a far stronger position in terms of their relationship vis-a-vis -vis the global economy than we are. Well, the media talks about Russia losing, right? Which I don't... You know, that's ridiculous, I think, based on what I know about Ukraine. And they talk about uh, China being in a bad situation, their um, their economy. I think that there's some serious questions on whether Joe Biden, because he's, he's compromised with China. We believe that, or we've seen issues with him being compromised. So could it be China moving in and pulling all this, this mess taking away, hurting the United States in the long run and taking, wanting to take control of our country. You know, one of the things that we were taught early on in the military is um, never stop the enemy when they're helping you win. <laughs> you know, yeah. so if, if I'm looking at the battlefield, I say, I, I, I want this to happen, but they're doing it by themselves to stay out of their way, let them do it. And that's sort of been the Chinese approach to the United States. Let's, let's just take apart uh, your question. Russia losing. I don't know if anybody watched TV this morning. Um, most Americans don't, but Vladimir Putin held a uh, a meeting of the uh, of the of his uh, National Security Council, and he did he did something that um, you'd, you'd have to be a history of you know, a student of Russian history to understand the significance. He he, in addition to announcing um, a new uh, security mechanism that includes the imposition of martial law in the four frontline oblasts that were just brought into Russia, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Lugansk. There's higher degrees of, um, of uh, security awareness in Crimea and the bordering regions. Um, there's even enhanced security reaching back into Moscow. Um, he created something called the Special Military Commission. Uh, its historical precedent is something called the GKO, GKO, um, the, 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 the head uh, military commission 
that was established by Stalin the day after Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June. Uh, 1941. That shows you the scope and scale of what we're talking about, the significance. He is mobilizing all of Russia uh, into a singular uh, command structure, singularly focused on concentrating the strength of Russia into achieving the military objectives in Ukraine. That means that there will be no bureaucratic hiccups or anything. Everything is streamlined straight to the new commander that they've appointed, this General Sirovulkin. Uh, nicknamed General Armageddon, who is, you know, exercising singular control over the special military operation. This is on back of a partial mobilization of 300,000 troops, 222,000 of whom have already been mobilized, the rest are in the process, and another 70 to 80,000 volunteers above and beyond that who are being processed and trained. Um, the Russians are in control of the battlefield. Everybody talks about the Ukrainians in Kherson. The last time I checked, every offensive they attempted up to and including this morning has resulted in not the single uh, the, the Russians haven't lost a single inch of territory and the Ukrainians have lost hundreds if not thousands of troops, dozens if not hundreds of vehicles. And that's the way it's going to go from now on. Russia's not losing, Russia's winning. Russia's shutting down the Ukrainian power grid. 40% has been destroyed. We'll probably be close to 100% by the end of this month. Then it gets cold. Ukraine freezes to death. The will of the people to continue resistance collapses. You get political collapse. Meanwhile, Russia is grinding the Ukrainian military down. The Ukrainian military is going to lose heart. They've got no reserves left. They burned all the reserves in these suicidal attacks. The Russians are increasing their power. They win. Russia wins this conflict, hands down. That victory will become, um, you know, it's not only assured right now, but it'll become apparent to everybody in the weeks and months to come. So Russia's winning.